Well, good evening to all of you tonight. Good to be with you once again. We want to go through, as uh, Brother Dave suggested, some questions that were in the question box at the beginning here of our session, and then uh, move into our study of the book of Acts. And so if you will, if you'll turn in the Scriptures to these verses that we'll be looking at, the first one is in the Gospel of John, in chapter 8 and verse 31. John 8.31. I'll read the verse and then read the question. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed Him, If you abide in My word, you are My disciples indeed. So the principle is, if you continue or remain in My word and My teaching... You are a true disciple. Okay? I don't understand, I don't fully understand what that verse means. Can you explain it a little bit, a little bit more? So, I would say that the Lord here is making a clarification. Uh, It's a very important verse in this chapter, and John 8 is a very important chapter in John, so it would take, take probably a couple hours to really exegete the entire passage, but just to understand this verse, uh, the Lord is making a distinction here. In John chapter 8, by now he has had quite a bit of time in public ministry and teaching, and he is beginning to make distinctions amongst those who are listening to him, those who are truly his disciples and followers, and those who are still undecided about him. And, of course, the chapter begins with the story of the woman caught in adultery, and the Lord then opens up what we call the uh, light of the world discourse, that He is the light. And He's contrasting the fact that He is the light. He has the truth for Israel. That's who He's ministering to here. And the Pharisees do not. The religious leaders do not have the truth. So that's obviously making a distinction that is going to cause some difficulty for the religious leaders. And so for those that are listening, those that want to be in the light as He is in the light, He says to them that those Jews who had believed in Him, and and it's interesting, of course, John uses that word believe in a very broad sense. Because he'll say those that believed in him then leave him in John 6, right after the bread of life discourse. But those who had believed in him in, in as much as they understood at that time doesn't necessarily mean always that they're born again, okay, the way John uses it. If you abide or remain in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And then he gives the promise, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. All right, so he'll go on to point out how the Pharisees are followers of their father, the devil. Pretty strong words later in John chapter 8. And uh, so I trust that makes it clear that what he's pointing out is those who are Christ's disciples, that is, those who, as we define the term Christian this morning in the book of Acts, those who are true Christians, those who are truly born again, have a hunger for God's Word and remain in the teaching. Um, to use a couple of parallel passages, John will say in 1 John chapter 2, they went out from us because they were not of us. 
Had they been of us, they would have remained with us. And the us there, I think, is the apostles. He's talking about the apostles' doctrine. And he said they would have remained in the truth of the New Testament and the apostles' doctrine. And the fact that they left the apostles' doctrine to follow who knows what other teaching demonstrated they were never of us. They were never born again. They were never disciples, see? Just because someone meets in a church doesn't make them a disciple of Christ. We understand that, right? And, and so our attitude towards the Word of God. Peter will say in 1 Peter chapter 2 that a born-again Christian hungers for God's Word like a newborn baby hungers for milk. Now those of you who have had newborn babies in the house, does that baby let you know at 2 o'clock in the morning that they want their milk? They hunger for that milk. They know the God, that the Lord has put that desire in them for nourishment. They know they need nourishment to grow. And they just have an innate desire within them put by, there by God to grow. And we who are disciples of Christ have a desire to want to grow spiritually. And we know it's through the Word in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, using the Word in our hearts that we grow. So that's a real, it's a good measuring line. If we're working in pastoral work, that is one-on-work -on -work with someone who professes to be a Christian, their attitude toward the Word of God is a big marker then, isn't it? It's a big marker in, in what, where we see they are spiritually. They may just have some sort of understanding of the gospel, but not really have made the Lord their personal Savior yet. And so that's one of the things that we use. So it's a good verse for them. The next verse is in, in, in uh, the writing of this verse. Is, uh, it's, it's difficult to read. So I think it says Luke 9.21. That's what we're going to look at. And if you wrote out that question and, and that's not it, then put another question in the box and try to make the, uh, the numbering clearer if you can because there was a little bit of scribble there. But Luke 9.21. Read the verse first. And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one. And the question is, I don't understand this verse. It is a little confusing to me. All right? So don't understand the verse. He strictly warned and commanded them not to tell anyone. It, I guess there's a little bit of confusion in the fact that this is after uh, Peter's made his confession of the Lord. The Lord had asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? There in verse 18. And uh, John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Peter affirms the, the identity of the Lord Jesus. And the Lord strictly warned them and commanded them to tell this to no one. See, this is something that, this is why part of why I am a dispensationalist. And why I think probably most of us are dispensationalists. Because we see that there are times that the Lord says, don't go. And then there are times he says, go. <laughs> and he's, in, he's the one in charge of that. One of the great examples of that is in Matthew chapter 10. For the sake of time, I won't look at him. But in Matthew chapter 10, verse 5 and 6, he tells them to go not to the Gentiles, but to go only, don't even go to the Samaritans, <laughs> but only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's to the 12 apostles. But then you get to chapter 28, verse 19 and 20 in the same book in Matthew, and he tells them, now this is the 11, Judas being gone, he tells them to go to all nations. So he told them strictly not to go to the nations, and then here he tells them to go to all the nations. 
What's happened in between? Well, a lot. The cross. The resurrection. And then the inauguration of the church to soon follow. So, the Lord has different commands at different times. So, at this point in His public ministry, He knows that if the, if the disciples spread abroad this kind of teaching that, that the Lord has given them, that He is Christ, He is the Son of God, it would restrict His ministry in certain areas. And He is reaching out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So he doesn't want restrictions. When, when there is problem with the religious leaders in Jerusalem, what does he do? Stay there and start a riot? No, he leaves and goes up to the area where John the Baptist was baptizing or goes up to Galilee or goes way up into Mount Hermon to avoid Philip, Herod, the Tetrarch's area. You know, So the Lord is sensitive to these things. So I trust that's the, what the, uh, the individual believer was looking at. The next question... It's kind of a general question on dress, and we've had this question here before, so I don't know if this is the same person. What scriptures support women wearing pants, men's clothing in the church? Is this Paul's, the apostles' teaching? Should the church be different from the world? <laughs> and of course, I don't think the word pants are, are referred to in scripture directly. And I leave the, uh, the dress for the local sisters up to the local elders in an assembly. The teaching of the scripture is modest apparel. And I think you don't have to have a degree in fashion design to know what modesty in apparel means. I think we all have a sense of what that is. With regard to women wearing slacks, I don't call them pants. The world calls them slacks. Uh, if, if you're in... The, the Scottish Highlands, men wear kilts that look like skirts, like women's clothing. But I promise you, a Scottish Highlander wouldn't appreciate you saying that you're wearing women's clothing to them. They consider that men's clothing. If you're in the Middle East, you wear, men wear robes that look like skirts. They don't wear pants. If you're in the West, people, so in different cultures, people dress differently. The key isn't trying to make a division amongst God's people over some personal preference. That's not godliness. That's not love. That will not produce fruit, I can assure you, according to 1 Corinthians 13. The key is that we lovingly allow different Christians or at different levels of growth spiritually, right? And, and that understanding of modest apparel, a woman that gets saved out of a lifestyle where she maybe was very loose with that, it may take some time for her to be led to understand by the Holy Spirit, I'm forgiving her that time. Maybe some of you aren't. Maybe some of you are legalistic and would, would really like to run them out on a rail out of the city. But I don't think that's a scriptural way to handle it. But I leave that up to the local elders to make the final call on that. Modesty and apparel. Peter talks about it in 1 Peter 3. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 4. I mean, 1st, sorry, Romans 14 and 15. And there are other references too. Of course, in the Old Testament, it just says women aren't to wear men's clothing. And if some brethren think that slacks are men's clothing, I think that's kind of a personal judgmental call, an opinion. Not everybody thinks that way. So I think we've got to be careful about pushing opinions that cause divisions instead of trying to be more loving. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 29. 1 Corinthians 
15 and verse 29. I'll read the verse. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? What is meant by the phrase baptized for the dead in this question? Of course, the major teaching in this passage in 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection. He's teaching on the resurrection. And he's using some arguments to show that, that, that if the resurrection were not true, what would be the result? Like you would still be in your sins, he says there in, in uh, around verse 18, 19. Here he's referring to a practice that apparently we have no other knowledge in the Bible about this practice. We don't know that it was believers that were doing this or whether it was Pharisees and, and uh, religious people uh, that were affiliated with the church in, on, a, uh, on the outskirts, so to speak, were doing this. But this idea of baptized for the dead, it appears that if some Christians got saved and died before they were baptized, that someone had started this idea that, well, uh, another Christian could be baptized for them and it would count. Now, he's not saying, he's not teaching us to do that. He's not affirming the teaching one way or the other, is he? He's just using that as an example. Those of you who are doing that, why would you do that if there was no resurrection? Why would you worry about going through that ritual of baptizing for someone who's died if there's no resurrection? The whole reason you're doing it is because you believe there is a resurrection. Right? So he's using it as an example of a way to argue for the resurrection. He's not saying one way or the other if that is a practice that he affirms, and it's not a practice that's affirmed anywhere else in the Bible. Of course, whether someone we know from the teaching of the Word of God, if someone believes in the Lord and is born again and they don't get a chance to be baptized, where are they going to spend eternity? With the Lord. If you're born again, that's what brings you into the family of God, the second birth, not baptism. And baptism is something that the Lord wants done. is a public affirmation of our new birth, and it's something that follows after it. The amount of time in between conversion and baptism varies from individual to individual. For me, I was I was saved three years before I was baptized because I didn't I had been baptized as an infant. I didn't know if that counted, and I needed time to get teaching on it. But when when I got the teaching, the Lord made it real clear, and then immediately I wanted to be baptized. So did that mean I wasn't saved? No, I knew I was going to heaven. Okay. Galatians two seventeen. Galatians two seventeen. Okay. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. The question is, what does it mean that Christ... Now, the wording in the question here is not really consistent with the verse. The question is, what does it mean that Christ is a minister of sin? That's not what the verse says. It says, is Christ a minister of sin? And then he answers clearly, he isn't. So he isn't a minister of sin. But the question is, what does it mean to say, why is he referring this way 
to the Lord. And of course, in the argument here in Galatians, he's speaking about justification by faith. And we seek to be justified by Christ. If we are found to be sinners because we're justified by faith, and Christ taught that those who are justified by faith are saved, then is Christ a minister of sin? He would be if, if, that, if their teaching was right, that justification by faith was insufficient. That if you had to be justified by faith plus works, then the argument of the Judaizers would be correct. But that is not correct. Their argument is not correct. Christ is not a minister of sin. And justification is by faith, by faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's what he's teaching there in Galatians. Okay, I'm going through these rather quickly because I want to get to Acts, but we can expand on them at another time if we want to, if we need to. Okay, this one doesn't have a scriptural reference. Please explain what is holy love as it related as it's related to marriage, husband and wife. Also, what is a holy kiss as it relates to one another amongst the saints? Well, this would this could we could spend a lot of time on too. But Ephesians five expresses in one of the clearest passages what the love is between husband and wife. The the husband is to love his wife how, as Christ loves the church. How does Christ love the church? Always, unconditionally, gives every gave everything he had for the church. So how is the husband to love the wife? The same way. And of course, you husbands are saying, well, I can't do that in my own strength. And, and I would add, amen, you can't. And the Bible doesn't ask you to do it in your own strength. You, you're not in your own strength. You have the Holy Spirit if you're born again. You can only do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. But you do have the Holy Spirit if you're born again. And so therefore, he enables a Christian to love even when the feelings don't agree. Because it's a matter of a decision of the heart, of the will, of obeying the Word of God and submitting oneself to the Holy Spirit. So yes, there aren't any circumstances by which a husband couldn't continue to love his wife if he wants to be loyal to the Lord and in fellowship with the Lord. Of course, the holy kiss was a custom that was uh, prominent, particularly in the Middle East. It's still, it's still used in the Middle East uh, and in other parts of Eastern culture. We don't use it too much in the West anymore. And it was the idea, uh, as I understand it, it was you know even men with men uh, kissing like on the cheek, like you see them often do it, you know, even today in the Middle East. And it was an idea of uh, expressing that it's hard to have that kind of closeness with somebody and still stab them in the back. <laughs> you know, it, it's an idea. Of course, we know that can happen. <laughs> I need I cite any examples? Libya, the leader of Libya, for one, and, and others. But uh, so, you know, that it can become just an empty ritual like anything else. But the idea was to, to show the, the closeness between in the bond we have in Christ between believers in the church and how much we value each other. In the culture that we live in today, I think maybe that that's it's probably the holy kiss is 
most people don't understand what it means and probably can't express it, so a holy handshake would probably be better, maybe. Uh, we've had, you know, difficulties with between men and men and women and women and men and women. and So uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding. We live in a very corrupt society. I think you understand that. I think we want to do everything we can to guard ourselves against unnecessary affections in public that, that give the appearance even of evil. Okay? But, uh, but again, that somewhat is a cultural thing. When I'm around uh, people from a Latin culture, in the Latin culture, which is a Western culture, uh, oftentimes that kiss on the, on the side of the neck is something that's expressed, and I don't have a problem with it. I don't make a big scene about it. I usually don't initiate it, but I receive it because I understand it's, it's from their, that culture and I understand how it's given. Uh, I, again, I'm not going to be a legalist and embarrass somebody or be, uh, make someone unduly uncomfortable in an unnecessary way. If somebody wants to, you can see with any one of these questions, if somebody wants to, they could really cause a lot of problems in an assembly. It's, and, and I'm telling you this as a protection. And these people, the professional weaker brothers, uh, you know, they, they'll threaten to leave. And, you know, I had one brother tell me, you know, if they did leave, maybe it would be better for our assembly. You know? Because their idea is to cause problems in something. They're going to find something to stir it up and cause problems. And that is not a Christian attitude. Amen? And so I would say, if there's someone like that, that I would encourage elders anywhere I go to deal with that person. Deal with them. Don't let them continue to do that. Don't let them to continue to be a problem, especially the young Christians. Those are the ones they tend to go after, just like the cults do. In Romans 14 and 15, we spent, what, Eight sessions in Romans in 14, 15, five years ago. And there's, there's so much detail there about how those that are weak and how they're to be loving. We're supposed to be loving one another and giving one another room to grow and not imposing our ideas when it's an opinion upon others. We want to be supportive, edifying. Let everything be done unto edification. Right, And so if you're thinking a thought and about to put it in words that's not unto edification, as my grandfather used to say, button up. Button it up. Keep it to yourself. And pray. All right? So let's come back to Acts chapter 1. Those are the questions that we had so far in the box. And I think... Malcolm, is that, there's still opportunity to do that if people want to do that and put questions in. But I would say try to keep it to questions with regard to the Scripture, not with regard to cultural items and those kinds of things. Let's stay with just what the Word of God teaches and try to put a Scripture reference, if you may, if you can. Okay, in Acts chapter 1, we're going to spend quite a bit of time here because Acts chapter 1, all of it, not just the first 11 verses leading up to the ascension, but even the event that follows that dealing with Judas's replacement is essential to understanding the rest of the book. Chapter 1 and really chapter 2 and the event that occurs there really set up the entire book. 
And so if we, if we don't understand this, then it's, it's possible we're not going to really understand and appreciate what follows after it that builds on it, builds on the truth that's here. And so that's why we spent some time here. And, and so we've been in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and we were at the end of chapter 1, verse 3, the Lord's teaching 40 days, speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. That's where we were when we left off this morning. And I want to go back again to Luke chapter 24. That's where we were starting to go this morning because, again, in Luke 24, our Lord expands, beginning in verse 44, I think, on what this teaching was. He says in verse 44, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, concerning me. Concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Who opened their understanding? The Lord did. But they also wanted to understand too, didn't they? Their wills were open. They had a heart. They had a desire to be taught. So both are working together. And he says to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. It was necessary. It was essential. God's holiness required it. You see? And the Lord is totally submitted to the holiness of God, and and so are we, I trust. It's the holiness of God. Some brother told me up in Kansas a few months ago, he said, you know, I've noticed that amongst Christians today, we've lost the concept of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, and, and that is something that the writer of Hebrews talks about it, right? Without which we won't see the Lord. The fear of the Lord is something that in our culture where it talks about pluralism, there are many ways to God, and relativism, there's no absolute truth. And, and this idea of the reverential fear of God has been kind of set aside so that we have Christians now that say, well, I'm, a, I'm under grace, I can do what I want. Don't tell me what I can't and can't do, I'm under grace now. That's one extreme. That's licentiousness, according to the Bible, right? It's abusing grace. But the other extreme is out there too. Legalism. And legalism and licentiousness are always the two extremes of the flesh. And legalism says, well, I'm so concerned about the holiness of God that the Word of God's not enough. I'm going to add a bunch of rules to the Word of God like the Pharisees did. And then I'm not only going to impose those rules on myself, I'm going to impose those rules on everybody else. If you want to impose them on yourself between you and the Lord, that's between you and the Lord. But when you start imposing your own rules on other people, that's legalism. You see the distinction? If you want to be strict with yourself beyond what the Bible tells you you need to be strict, that's fine. But you can't impose that on fellow Christians. You don't have that liberty. You're not God. And that's where the Word of God gives us guidance. So he says, The Christ had to suffer and also rise from the dead the third day. And, verse 47, that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in His name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. 
And so then these 40 days, he's teaching them with regard to the kingdom of God. Right? Verse 3 of Acts 1. What was he teaching them? Well, he tells us here, he's teaching them from the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. In the law of Moses, that's the first five books, the Pentateuch, the prophets and the Psalms, and the prophets would include many of the historical books because they, Samuel was a prophet and he wrote First and Second Samuel and, and there were prophets that wrote these other historical books as well. So they'd be included in that group. What did they say about the kingdom? Well, I want to look at just two references. And uh, the first one is in Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above all hills and all nations shall flow to it. So the question is, what is the mountain of the Lord's house? Is it the church? Well, there isn't any reference to the church in the New Testament in this kind of wording. The mountain of the Lord's house in the Old Testament is referring to Mount Zion, where the temple was built. And the, and the Lord's house is the temple built on the mountain of Zion of Jerusalem. And there will be a time where all nations shall flow to it. Has that ever happened since Isaiah's day? No. Has it happened in the last 2,000 years of the church? Definitely no. Jerusalem has been forsaken, desolate. And the house that was there that he's referring to was torn down in 70 A.D. But many people should come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and He will teach us His ways, and we shall walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, the word of the Lord, from Jerusalem. All right? He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. And of course, this is the verse, I think it's the parallel verse in Micah that's on the building at the United Nations in New York, right? They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Has that ever happened since Isaiah's day? No way. No war. That's what he's saying. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. So I think it's... It's very clear in this passage. He's referring to a future time which the Bible talks about in many, many places where Jerusalem is going to be elevated and exalted. The Lord Jesus will reign from there. The law of the Lord will go out from there and the nation shall flow to it. And what he's describing is what we refer to as the millennial kingdom. You say, well, why would the Lord be speaking to them about this here? I think He is trying to whet their appetite for what is future. The Lord knows that in the immediate term, in the present, He's going to tell them that they lack something. They lack power. 
And that's down in verse 8 of chapter 1. We haven't gotten down that far yet. But he's, he's whetting their appetite for the future. And by doing that, he whets our appetite for the future too. When we studied the 12 minor prophets, when we went through a detailed study in Zechariah, in, in Jeremiah, and in Ezekiel, all of those prophetic books tell us about this millennial kingdom that's to come. Where there will be peace. It's called the reign of righteousness and the reign of peace. There will be peace for a thousand years. Has there been peace for a thousand years on this planet ever since the fall? No. The longest that I know about is the Pax Romana. That lasted 200 years. The Roman peace, it was called, from roughly 100 B.C. to 100 A.D., when the Romans controlled most of the inhabited world at that time, and they, they enforced peace. The iron boot, the iron heel of Rome, they were referred to. That's all it lasted. And would you say that there's peace today, that nations aren't fighting against each other? You think the United Nations is going to be able to fulfill this like they say on their, on their building up there? No. Only God's going to be able to do this, see. And, uh, of course, Micah chapter 4 is a parallel to this. And then over a few books to the uh, second to last book in the Old Testament, the book of Zechariah in chapter 14. Zechariah 14, verse 1, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil shall be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. This has never happened, beloved. You say, well, the Romans came against Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Yes. The Babylonians came against Jerusalem in 586, 606, 583 times in that period of time, of course. And the Assyrians came against Jerusalem before that in the time of King Sennacherib. Remember, in Hezekiah's day. But all the nations of the earth haven't done that. This, this verse hasn't been fulfilled. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as He fights in the day of battle. We're answering the question, what did the Lord teach the disciples with regard to the kingdom of God during the 40-day post-resurrection ministry? before His ascension. And this is what I think He was teaching them. This is what I think He was teaching them. And in that day, His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. This is a huge geographic change. Right now, the valley that's next to Jerusalem runs north-south. This one says east-west, clearly. He says it two different ways so that we make sure we get it. The Great Rift Valley that starts way up in Syria and it includes the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, the Dead Sea, goes all the way down through the Sinai, all the way into Africa. And into Central Africa, Mount Tanzania is down in it, the Great Rift Valley as it's called, Rift Valley Academy, and all of that down in Africa. It's the same, it's, it's one of the deepest cuts in the open, in the, I'm sorry, in the crust, in the surface of the earth that we have. But he says it's going to go 90 degrees to that. 
And then skipping down, and still in Zechariah 14 to verse 16, And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year and worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and keep the feast of tabernacles. This is what the Bible teaches. This has never happened. This will happen during the thousand-year millennial reign because Revelation will bring a lot more information in that we don't. the Old Testament prophets didn't have. In the book of Revelation, we find out that it lasts a thousand years. And then after the thousand years is over and Satan is released and, and there's another revolt against Jerusalem, then there's a great white throne judgment and then we move into the eternal state. And you and I are already eternal beings if we're born again. So these things ought to really concern us because we're, we're reading about, and he's writing about, our future. This is more important than what you will do next week here on this planet Earth. See, because this is the outworking of God's plan. In the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verse 9 and 10, it says that we shall reign with Him on the earth. We shall reign with Him on the earth in our glorified bodies. And what we're doing now, our training as people in the church, is preparation for that. Every king has his court, right? And the court is part of his administrative people that manage and administer his kingdom. And that's what his bride, the church, is going to do. Various roles, various functions. And we're being prepared for that now. This is what he was teaching him. And then over in, in the book of Psalms, in Psalm 96, there are a couple of Psalms there, Psalm 95 to 100. But Psalm 96, O sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless His name. These songs refer to the Lord's second coming and what people will be doing. This is what we'll be singing when He returns. It says in, in Psalm 99, The Lord reigns. Let the people tremble. He dwells between the cherubim. Let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion and so forth. What He describes here is our Lord reigning in Jerusalem. And it'll be joy over all the earth. And so that's what he's teaching them. But there's one other element to the kingdom of God, and that's in chapter math in, in chapter thirteen, I'm sorry, of the Gospel of Matthew. Because in, in Matthew, I'll just take a few minutes on this and we'll close. In Matthew chapter thirteen, this is what's referred to as the mystery parables discourse. There are eight parables that describe what he refers to in verse 11 as the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. So, there is a mystery form of the kingdom also. There's the millennial form of the kingdom, which we read about in Zechariah 14 and Isaiah 2. And I'm bracketing the entire prophetic section with those, but there are a lot of other references in between. But here in Matthew 13, there is also this portion that teaches us with regard to the mysteries of the kingdom. 
And this has to do like with the parable of the wheat and the tares, the parable of the sower. The parable of the wheat and the tares says that there will be wheat, there will be true believers and, and people that are pretenders together. And they will grow together and they won't be separated until the harvest. There's the parable of the growth of the mustard seed, which I think is, is a picture of the growth of a false religious system that calls itself Christianity. We call it Christendom. Not everyone or everything or every institution that claims to be Christian is Christian. We understand that, right? Because... If we don't understand that, we can be easily deceived by someone. There are those who are pretenders. They know they're pretenders. Many of them. Not all of them. Some are pretenders and don't know it. But many of them, they know they're pretenders. They're gaming the system. And they will game you for their own profit. If they, The Bible is replete with discussion about these kinds of people and teaching about them, right? Peter writes about them in Second Peter. Jude writes his whole book about them. Paul writes about him. John writes about him, calls him the Antichrist, and so forth. And so the Lord, I think, was teaching them about that too. But then they ask an interesting, coming back to Acts chapter 1, in verse 4 to 6, they ask an interesting question in the context of this kingdom of God that he's explaining to them. And it's very important to see this. Being assembled together, verse 4, He commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, You have heard from Me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked Him, saying, Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That's the verse that tells me that at least part of his teaching with regard to the kingdom that Luke refers to in verse 3 has to do with restoring the kingdom to Israel, which is the millennial kingdom that Isaiah 2 and Zechariah 14 were referring to. So I think he was preparing them for the church age in the mystery form of the kingdom but during those 40 days, but he was also preparing them for the millennial kingdom that was to follow the church age. And they ask Him, they say, Lord... So He has not taught them so far replacement theology, has He? You know what I mean by replacement theology? That the church replaces Israel. He hasn't taught them that. Otherwise, this would be a ridiculous question to ask, right? If He had already been teaching them with regard to the kingdom of God in verse 3 that the church had replaced Israel, then why would they ask the question, is it now time for you to restore the kingdom to Israel? They'd already know the answer. There isn't going to be any restoration of the kingdom to Israel because Israel's through. The church has replaced them. You with me? You follow the logic? And so they're, they're tracking with him. <laughs> they understand where he's going. They understand now that I don't think they understood it was going to last 2,000 years, this church age. But, but they had some concept, because they seemed to believe, Peter, Paul, that the Lord was going to return in their lifetime. But when He comes back, that He'll set up the kingdom. And they say, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom 
to Israel. Why were they concerned about that? Because they were nationalistic Jews? No. Because they knew that when the kingdom is restored, there's going to be at least a partial removal of the curse that's on this earth since the Garden of Eden, that the wolf will lie down with the sheep, that a child will play in a cobra's den. We didn't read that. That's in Isaiah 11 if you want to read it later. And that there, there's going to be a bountiful harvest of food and it's going to be a, the earth is going to be a wonderful paradise. Again. He's going to make the desert blossom as the rose, as Isaiah puts it. Can God do that? Can He take a desert area? We're suffering drought in Texas right now and you see these parched areas. He can turn it like that into a Garden of Eden if He wants to. And that's some of what will happen, I think, given the devastation that will happen during the end of the tribulation period. Secondly, so their question tells us a lot about what their understanding was of the kingdom of God. But secondly, notice his answer. Again, his answer is so important. If the kingdom wasn't going to be restored to Israel, this would have been the opportune place for the Lord to say, Hey, wait a minute. You're not getting it. I've been teaching you 40 days on the kingdom of God and don't you get it? The church has replaced Israel. You are the kingdom. The kingdom's already here. Why am I making such a point of this? Because that's one of the foundational teachings of covenant theology. Amillennial theology teaches that there's no literal thousand year reign of Christ that we are in it. I hope you like it. But I don't. I want God's kingdom, not man's. And you see, that's the, the, whole, the whole problem with the signs and wonders movement, demanding things for the, that will appear in the kingdom period now is all confusion because we're not in the kingdom. And here was a place where the Lord could, have, could make that abundantly clear, couldn't He? But what does He say? He doesn't say anything with regard to the event of the kingdom. He's already taught them that. The kingdom is Thy kingdom come. Thy will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is it being done on earth as it is in heaven now? No. Not even close. Not even in your heart and mine. We're not perfect disciples. We're not always obedient and submitted to Him, are we? So the... God's will is that we would be submitted to Him perfectly like His Son, and we're not even there. I didn't hear any amens, but I think some people agree with me on that. I'm not there. I know the kingdom hasn't come. I can look in me, I can look in you, I can look out there, and I know it hasn't. So it's future. And so what does He address? He doesn't address the event of the kingdom. He addresses the timing Remember they asked Him? Is it at this time? They didn't say, Lord, are you done with the kingdom? They know the kingdom's coming. He's been teaching them that. But is, it, is this the time you're going to do it, Lord? And some people like to get down on the, on the 11 and say, how come they weren't more focused on the church? Well, I wouldn't be too hard on them. They didn't have the New Testament yet. They were gradually getting it, Right? They're gradually being taught. They're gradually coming to understand these things. They had the Old Testament. And if you had the Old Testament, you would see that the first coming and the second coming of Christ are right side by side, sometimes even in the same verse. 
In Isaiah 61, which our Lord reads in Luke chapter 4, in one verse, He talks about the first coming and the second coming in the same verse. No air between. No time in between them. So should they have been expecting the kingdom? I would have been if I was them. And what does He answer? It's not for you to know whether there is a kingdom. Is that what He says? It's not for you to know the times or seasons when that kingdom is going to be established, which the Father has put in His own authority. Let me show you one other verse, two pages over in chapter 3. When Peter gives his address to the Sanhedrin, after the healing of the lame man at the beautiful gate, we'll close with this, just bear with me, but this links to what the Lord has just taught them. Peter has given some explanation of what happened to the lame man and gives all the credit to the Lord Jesus. And then in verse 18, Acts 3, But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all His prophets that the Christ would suffer, He has thus fulfilled. Where did Peter get that? What did we just read in Luke 24, 44? The Lord showed him from the Psalms, the prophets, the law of Moses. All these Psalms that Peter quotes, Psalm 16, Psalm 110, Psalm 102, there in Acts chapter 2. Where did he learn that? When the Lord taught him and showed him the Scriptures concerning himself in Luke 24, 44. You see, they were being taught and they were getting it. Peter is now teaching it. He had just been taught during the 40-day post-resurrection ministry and now he's delivering what the Lord has taught him. And so he says, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Times of refreshing. That's a good way of speaking about what it means to be born again. Are you refreshed tonight? Have you come into the times of refreshing? Because if you're born again and your sins have been blotted out, I don't know how you couldn't be saying you're in the times of refreshing. To no longer be under the guilt of sin again forever? That doesn't refresh you? Then you miss something. Come talk to one of us after. You miss something. If, you, if, if having your sins blotted out forever doesn't excite you, you miss something. If being able to approach the presence of the Lord in prayer anytime you want to, you don't have to be through the priesthood in Jerusalem. You don't have to be at the temple. You don't have to be on your knees. You don't have to be in any posture or clothing. There isn't a certain robe you have to wear or a certain thing like the rabbis wear. I've gotten one of those, you know, because I thought it was interesting. But, but you don't have to have that on to pray. Access by the Spirit to the Father at all times. That doesn't excite you? You can stand up if you want to. That excites me. Times of refreshing. I love that description. But then he goes on to say, and that He, the Lord, may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before. May send Him. He's already come. What's He referring to? May send you again. The second coming. That the Father may send you because He already knows. Peter knows that the Lord, He saw Him go to heaven. That He may send the Lord Jesus. And here's the verse. Verse 21. Whom heaven must receive until... Heard a preacher in Houston preach a 40-minute message on until... It's a great word. Until. Until what? 
until the times of restoration of all things? What was the question they asked in Acts 1? Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And they know that when the kingdom is restored to Israel, it will be the restoration of all things. The curse will be removed. The desert will blossom as the rose. <coughs> there will be a stream flow out from Jerusalem and all those wonderful things which God has spoken by the mouth of His holy prophets since the world began. Where did he learn that? <coughs> when the Lord taught from the Psalms, the prophets, the law of Moses, the things concerning Himself. I'd say Peter got it. And the Holy Spirit is what made the difference for Peter and the others. And that's what he'll deal with in the next three verses in Acts chapter 1. We'll eventually get to verse 12. We haven't even gotten to the ascension yet, and that's a beautiful scene. That ought to fill us with anticipation. They're looking and they see him go in the clouds, and the angels say, two angels say, What are you doing standing there? Staring. Get to work. Start preaching. He's going to come again just like you saw him go. How did he go? In a body, in a cloud. And then Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, we shall ascend and meet him in the clouds. Just an accident. No. Consistency in the mind of God. See? Using the same word even. So that we get it. <laughs> see how just studying the word of God can help us? We just consistently handle the word of God. It will speak for itself. There's going to be a restoration of all things. Are you going to be a part of that? That's what I want to ask you tonight. Do you know for sure you're part of that? Because it's up to you. The gospel, God's made all the preparation. Like He said in the parable of the wedding banquet. I, I wanted to preach on that tonight. Matthew 22. He says, everything's ready. Go out and invite anybody who wants to to come. It's all ready. I want to give you the kingdom. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The Word of God says. But some people don't want it. And we're going to meet some people like that this week. Thank you for praying for the soccer ministry. There is a lot going on in that soccer ministry that many of us don't know. Be praying. You may not be able to make it out there and play soccer, but you can be praying Monday night. It's a tremendous ministry. And lives are being touched. But there are a lot of other ministries going on here too. And all of you are working, I trust, in various parts of it. Get involved. Be a part of it. Bear fruit for the Lord. He's coming back. He's going to reward. We're going to reign with Him. It's going to be forever. And it's going to be wonderful. Father, we thank You for this time tonight. Thank You for the patience of Your saints as we work through these things. And we pray, O oh Lord, You will give us a delighted heart as we begin this, this week upcoming, as we... Fold out here the first day of the week. Thank you for each of the saints that are here, their joy in the Lord. We pray that that would be expressed more and more as the people around us look at us and ask us to explain the hope that is in us. Help us to be truthful, concise, respectful, and true. We ask 
in the Lord Jesus' name with thanksgiving for his great glory. All God's people said, Amen. Amen.